Welcome to Dream Business Radio, the place to create your dream business now. Get ready for some inspiration, some encouragement, some proven business building strategies, and a couple of new ideas that you haven't even thought of. It's time to leave slow and steady as she goes to the other entrepreneurs, because this program is all about speed and fast results. And now, broadcasting from his floating home somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, the dream business coach himself, Jim Palmer. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Captain Jim Palmer. I am the dream business coach, and I am still in Florida as we're recording this. I think by the time you hear it, we'll be in the Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> but my special guest today is Jacqueline Troop Robinson, and she is north of the border, and she told me it's actually snowing there today. Uh, but let me do a, a proper introduction. She's the founder of Spark Engagement Incorporated. It's a global analytics company in human resources focusing on employee engagement throughout her 30-year career. Jacqueline has fo focused on uplifting leaders and inspiring passionate engagement at all levels of an organization. She's a best-selling author of the book, Fire Up Your Team, 50 Ways for Leaders to Connect, Collaborate, and Create Their Teams. And she strives to create cultures of passion, productivity, and performance. And this is something that is sorely needed in a lot of organizations today. So I'm excited to talk with her and, and share some of her brilliance with you. Jacqueline, how are you doing today? Doing fantastic, despite the snow. <laughs> despite the snow, right. And as, as you and I are recording this interview, we're, it's, um, it's uh, late April, so we're all still hunkered down. Um, yes. And uh, you know, even though it's an audio interview, a lot of most of the time I <clears throat> we turn on cameras and say hello, and you are well dressed for early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> got to show up. <laughs> I know you got to show up and get dressed. That's actually one of the things I think, oddly enough, slightly uh, interesting. I hope is that you know, whenever you're going through tough times or whatever, you get dressed, take a shower. You know, there, I a long time ago I, I was uh, unemployed for a long period of time, and I looked at it, my full time job was finding work, and I just didn't feel appropriate in sweatpants. I'm just a little, I don't know why that popped into my head, but you know, it's, you, you do show up, right? That's part of the deal. Absolutely. And it's really interesting when you see everything that's circulating online regarding the pandemic and how to maintain engagement, you know, a really healthy routine is so critical to, to creating that foundation for resilience and for just upliftedness, right? Yeah. So you, a 30 year career in HR, I mean, that's a long time. I mean, HR can, I guess, depending on where you are, the size of the company, HR can be one of those things that fatigues you and drains you because you're dealing with people all the time and some of their things. How did you, how did you get into that uh, role? Well, it's really interesting. It's certainly not something I anticipated I would do when I graduated from grad school with a master's in English literature. <laughs> now, does anybody ever say, I want to go into a career in HR? I'm just curious how that happens. Well, they do. I do get approached for that. And it's really interesting. That would not have happened a decade ago. That is really a recent uh, phenomena that I've, I've been encountering. And I think it's fantastic. And I have a lot, of th a lot to say about that because because okay. I, didn't, I didn't actually uh, go to school to study HR, but what I did become is a senior manager in a very, very large corporation at a young age. And I 
actually was not qualified from a leadership development point of view, really. I was thrown into this position. I was the youngest person on my team. I was managing people who were 30 years my senior. Uh, and it was really quite uh, intimidating. And all I had to go on was really the values I'd been taught by my parents. And fortunately for me, they were very HR centric. And mm. so I learned how to lead by just following values, treating people well. And I realized that I loved that aspect of my job. So even though I was hired to do franchising and other more technical work, I quickly gravitated to that because I could not at my young age replace their knowledge and experience. I, I couldn't do their jobs. I didn't even try. I was managing seven collective agreements. I didn't try to read seven collective agreements. It was ridiculous. So I just went back to, you know, the nuts and bolts of how to treat people well and how to help them be their best. And it worked. And we went from being the worst performing team to the best performing team in my division. And I was hooked on HR. I didn't even know mm. it was called HR at the time because human resources in our company was really labor relations, you see. So oh, I, see. I, I didn't even understand really the breadth and scope of HR at the time. But I, I started to pursue it corporately. I did take over our national learning and development program, a quality and communications program. And that's when I got exposed to what HR really is all about. And, uh, you know, after seven years, I decided to um, set up my own little boutique firm. And the years have flown by. I can't even believe it's been 30 years. Wow. I'm coming up on 20 years, you know, self-employed. So it does, the time does fly. Of course, you tend to forget the first five or 10 where you were starving. <laughs> but that always helps. You know, I'm curious about the, um, the role that you played and, um, Clearly, I, I checked out your book and some other things. I could see where you're really a people person. And you think of different companies, especially big corporations, where, you know, you hear expressions, you know, we leading from the top down, et cetera, and whether it's the CEO or COO or somebody's usually the figurehead. But I look at that like there's the principal of the school and then there's the guidance counselor. Is the, am I oversimplifying it? Is, were you kind of like that person that the students or in, in your case, the employees actually connected with? And, and that's why you were able to have affect so much change? Well, it was really interesting. Um, I've never been asked that question, so that's a great question. I, I'm um, actually surprised. I thought that was a brilliant question that popped out of my head. Yeah, it's a great question, and I've never <laughs> been asked. So it was really interesting. What I think it really was the formula was leadership, I think, is about relationships. So for me, it was less about being the guidance counselor, perhaps, not to say that there weren't ever times where you would coach and give advice and mentor. Of course, that's a piece of it. Uh, I agree with that fully. But it was more around building a relationship in which there was absolute trust and respect and uh, commitment to the other person's personal growth and development. And then I also am very achievement orientated and I really believe people come to work so that they can make a contribution. And if you help people clarify their aspirations, understand their talents and how they can contribute in a meaningful way and build a relationship at the same time, I think that's really a winning formula, right? Because you yeah. then get the people side, but you also help people uh, feel fulfilled in their work. 
I'm just curious, did you ever get any pushback from other C-suite executives or, I mean, it sounds like you really affected some pretty major change in, in the engagement. Well, it's a re- that's another really interesting question uh, that no one else has ever asked me yet again. So that's really <laughs> interesting. And I've been doing a lot of podcasts. Um, so yes, so I had a real mix. I had some executives that were incredibly supportive. But when you work in a very large organization and you are changing positions, you know, you get exposed to a lot of different leadership styles, management styles. And so I also unfortunately had nightmare uh, senior executives who were quite honestly verging on unethical, but right. That you're going to, you're going to hit that in life. And how do you navigate that? And, um, and how do you celebrate the strong support you get? Like my, uh, in my book, I acknowledge a man named Ted Scott, and he is now on the west coast of Canada. He's retired, but he took me under his wing when I was in my mid-20s, late-20s, and was the best leader I could have had. And fortunately, that was my first experience. Later on, I had the more negative experiences. But once you've had that foundation, you know that the negative isn't how it has to be, and you can try to navigate that. Um, But I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, you do need very senior support to affect radical change. You can make incremental change on your own. Mm -hmm. I think you can work quite independently. Um, But I think to really transform an organization, if it's a corporation with a hierarchy, you definitely need you know, the CEO support for sure. So you're an expert in employee engagement. I know in, in your book and you're very, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's one of your missions is to create passion, you know, yes. amongst the employees. Yes. Um, it seems, and I mean this in a good way, and I'm just really inquisitive. It seems like such a high level goal but then there's so many people who just view work as the paycheck and just go there. How do you, how do you transition from it's just a job, which I guess in any organization, you're going to have a certain amount of other people who just view it as that. But so I'm curious, how, how do you get people passionate about their jobs? Well, this is the role of research. So we were very blessed uh, 20 years ago now to find this topic because we saw that the word was being used but wasn't understood and there were comments made like find your passion well how do you find your passion how do you figure that out uh, what even it's such is- a bumper sticker right, right. Like, well how right? do you practically put it into play and there's so many stereotypes around it so people might have said to me on a day wow you're really passionate but inside my emotion wasn't passion. So what was I feeling? What was I portraying? Or when we started off interviewing people, because we interviewed hundreds of people who had been nominated by CEOs or their manager as being very passionate. And I had people come in and say, I don't know why I'm here. And it's Mm. like, oh, okay. But their stereotype of passion was being gregarious, being vocal, being like highly enthusiastic versus really understanding what is that internal emotion. And so we were able to uncover really what is passion. And we have a formula 
And okay. so once you know the formula, you can really help people discover their drivers in a very uh, methodical way even, which doesn't sound sexy, but it gets you to that end result. So what we learned, and this won't surprise you because the literature is quite well documented in this area, is people need to see their work and career, so current work and career, as highly meaningful to them. Now, it's extremely subjective. So what your source of meaning is could be very different than mine, even if we're doing the same job, right? So what Mm -hmm. is your source of meaning in your work? Now, the part that was surprising and is not well documented, documented in literature is meaning alone is not enough. And you hear this a lot. This is another bumper sticker, right? <laughs> find purpose in your work, find meaning in your work. That alone is not enough to create passion, right? What you also need is a sense of progress. So whatever that thing is that you care about, whatever that source of meaning is, You take action because you care about it, but that action has to give you a sense of progress. You have to have evidence of forward movement, of impact, of contribution. You need to feel, even if you've made a mistake, that you've learned from that mistake, and that can be a signal of progress to you. Lessons learned. So we must have a signal of progress. We must be able to tangibly experience this sense of progress to be passionate. I'm really curious lately, you know, say in the last five or or even 10 years, this whole multi-generational aspect of business where, you know, because people live longer, they work longer, you could have in a, in a big corporation, you could have people, you know, right out of college and, and, and have a certain way of thinking and it's very natural and normal and they've never known life without a cell phone (laughs) that they can look at whenever they want. And then you have, you know, probably two or three levels, but all the way up to the 60 year olds who think, you know, work, 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 work work and you know what I mean so that's got to be a huge dynamic today is multi-generational workforce it comes up a lot I just did a research project on looking at engagement drivers passion drivers and millennials and I interviewed a lot of millennials and what I found is there wasn't any difference it might appear to be different wow it was really fascinating. And I've done quite a few keynotes on this. And the millennials always come up to me afterwards and say, thank you so much for that. Like the stereotype doesn't fit. And people have been painting us wrong. <laughs> yeah. Now there are some unique things that can distort how people understand millennials from this passion engagement point of view. For example, they have the highest debt load in our recorded history coming out of educational institutions. So yes, money is more of a factor for them, given they have this heavy debt load. I didn't have any debt when I graduated from grad school. So that is a real difference that can distort things. But when you are looking at real drivers of passion, I got exactly the same messages um, that you know, here is what I find meaningful in my work and I'm prepared to work hard because I want to make a difference. And when I have performed well, I do want to be recognized for that. It isn't about everyone gets a medal. You know how they say that about millennials all the time? You know, we've taught Mm -hmm. them that they don't have to win to get a medal. I didn't hear that at all. What I heard was if I perform well and I get the outcome that is or go beyond what is expected of me. I do want recognition for that. And I think that's fair, right? I think that's fair. What 
they don't want is to say, oh, awesome work, but you're going to have to wait seven years to get increased authority in this organization. That's our, because that's our, <laughs> that's our rule, right? Because I had to wait seven years yeah. as a baby boomer, right? That's right. So I, I think, you know, they um, are, they want engagement. They want to contribute in meaningful ways. They're prepared to put in the work, but they also want to constantly learn and grow and develop. They want the challenge. They want to be able to apply their knowledge in a pragmatic way. And when I interview people um, of any age, honestly, everyone wants the same thing. Now, what I do get, to, to be fair, and your point in your question is well taken, a lot of people have given up on their aspirations and they've decided to settle for where they're at. And is that, that an age thing? Like people who settle? I mean, you're, are, I don't imagine people who just starting out just settling, but by thirties or forties, do you sometimes feel like they're just going to settle? I, what I have found is people have settled for different reasons. Sometimes it is as they get older, they uh, buy a house and or they get married, have children and they feel they get risk adverse. And so it's good enough here. Or it's okay here. Um, I also find that people uh, settle when they, for example, have tried to change things and they just keep getting resistance. And so they kind of give up and settle. There's different reasons why people might settle, but no one wants that. They just don't know how to get out of that. And so when you start to explore with them, sources of meaning and like reconnect them to that because you have to start with meaning first you can't start with progress progress doesn't make sense it's it's relative to something that matters to you right so yeah. you have to start with the meaning piece and when you can tap into that and you can get beyond their coping mechanisms because settling is a coping mechanism it's trying to make it okay with yourself that you've given up on your aspiration because you don't know how to get it and you don't want to live in that tension of, I want this, but I can't have it because that's not fun. Right. So you have to help people figure out how to get the progress. So we find in, we have an online assessment that gives you your state of engagement because passion's only one. Um, again, through the research, we are able to identify a total of eight states of engagement. Some of them are negative, some of them are neutral, some of them are positive. And we're able to help people move from, say, a negative state of engagement, like frustration. Frustration, I care a lot. Meaning is very high for me, but I'm not getting any progress. I'm taking action, not getting progress, and now I'm just frustrated. Right. For example, just one example. So how do you move from that frustrated state to a passion state? Well, the meaning is there. So you know, there's no point in coaching someone to have a better attitude. They care. What, they're, what you need to coach them on is how to take the kind of actions that are going to give them progress or how to focus on signals of progress that are actually there that they might not be seeing or, or paying attention to or focusing on. So um, it's really important to help people reconnect and give them strategies to move forward. And it's uh, quite, I don't even know how we discovered this. It was just such a blessing. The people we interviewed, how we looked at the data, had a fantastic team of statisticians that you know, combed our data when we first went online in 2006 and ever since. And we really have this figured out. And it's so exciting because it can really 
take passion and make it a real tangible, practical thing that you can plan for and achieve. Jacqueline, in your book, um, Fire Up Your Team, 50 Ways for Leaders to Connect, Collaborate, and Create Their Winning Teams. Um, in one of the later sections, you have a, um, it's called Celebrate to Uplift and Reward. Is that, well, tell me what that means. So I don't, I'll just leave it at that. Well, so one of the things that we've uh, discovered is that um, one of the critical differentiators between people who are passionately engaged and people who are somewhat engaged or somewhat energized or neutral is the people who are passionately engaged celebrate their achievements and accomplishments. They might celebrate them in small ways. They might celebrate them in big ways, um, but they celebrate. They take the time. How often do I hear people say, I don't have time for that. Like as soon as I get something done, I just got to get on to the next thing. You know, right, I they just stretch the goal and go for the next ladder, rung ladder, you know? And we are depriving ourselves because <laughs> celebration, if you think of meaning and progress, celebration, you don't celebrate something that's not meaningful. So it reinforces meaning. And you don't celebrate something that isn't in some kind of a forward movement, achievement, accomplishment. So it's also acknowledging progress. So when you celebrate, you are reinforcing meaning and progress. And it's a very powerful tool to create resilience, perseverance, perseverance and, and it really is the differentiator. Now, the other thing that's really interesting, if you look at the neuroscience around celebration and it becomes uh, a way of making progress its own reward. So for example, I work with clients who will say to me, you know, we just don't have the budget to reward people financially. You know, where they're at right now is all we can do for them. Mm -hmm. And I tell them that's okay because that's only a piece of the puzzle. Now, if your employees can't pay their bills, that's another matter, right? So that's a different matter. But right. If, if people are making enough that the money isn't a stress factor for them, right? That they can pay their bills and they might not have a lot of discretionary income, but they're not stressed by money. Then you can reward and recognize people just through the act of reinforcing and acknowledging the progress they're making, the contributions they're making. Um, progress itself is its own reward. It's one of the problems with video games, right? I reached another level. Well, that sense of progress turns on the reward centers of the brain. So if we can learn to really manage progress well, that goes a long way in helping our employees stay engaged. Wow. Such a fun interview. I, I love when I can actually learn something, which on <laughs> most cases, in all fairness to my other guests, but this is really fun. I, I have to ask you about one other thing in the book because we're starting to run short on time, but um, you have a, a section in your book called Make Bad Pots. What do you yes. mean by that? So I have a friend in the United Kingdom who loves to collect pottery and vases and vessels made out of pottery. And in the UK, they call them pots. So it's not pots and pans. Okay. <laughs> it's these works of art, really. And this potter that my friend visits, uh, and he's been collecting his pottery for many, many years. And in recent years, uh, when he's gone to visit Tim, Tim's the name of the potter, Tim was starting to look unhappy actually and so my friend sort of said Tim what's up you know I come to your studio every year I buy your pots every year but 
you just don't seem yourself. And he said, I don't have time to make bad pots. Mm. And my friend said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, it's great that I'm getting recognition now and that people want my pots, but I don't have any time to fail. I just have to keep producing right. and I don't have time to make bad pots and fail and learn really is what he was saying. And so in work, we often don't take the time to go outside of our comfort zone, to try something new, to try to learn. And one of the things we know is a critical driver of passion at work is being able to learn from mistakes, uh, being able to be creative in the way in which you work. And creativity and learning from mistakes need time and space, right? And we mm. often deprive ourselves of that because so many of us are kind of on that treadmill where, you know, we're just getting onto the next thing. I, I had a CFO say to me recently, I don't have time to think. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> yeah, right? So, and, and I think a lot of us have this busyness and feel overwhelmed. And it really is at the detriment of our performance and productivity, actually. There's a lot of research on that. And it certainly uh, is an obstacle to passion. You know, um, just my last thought, um, Tim the Potter, you know, went from being a creative person who feeds on creativity and trial and error and this that now to just being a producer he became a mass producer of pots because because of the demand yes and that's probably like really crushing his soul yes yes it's exactly and to be able to give space for that for our employees i think is so important Wow. Jacqueline, what a fun interview. And who, who thought I'd have fun talking HR, but you really know your topic very well. Um, how can people connect with you, get your book and, um, and we all have that an good on, stuff? And we have an online assessment. So our main website is sparkengagementindex.com. That's our assessment site where you can get a personal profile on what is your state of engagement at work and how do you move yourself to passion or how do you sustain it if you're already there. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, and it would just be great to hear from people. Sparkengagementindex.com. That's it. Yes. Sounds like, and we'll, we'll link that with the, uh, when, we put the, when we put the episode up. Thank you so much for being my special guest. I really appreciate it. Well, and thank you. You were a fantastic host. Oh, thank you. Hey, folks, that wraps up this very special and fun interview all about HR with Jacqueline Troop Robinson. Go get her book. Go check out uh, sparkengagementindex.com. You can connect with me at getjimpalmer.com amongst every other thousands of places online. But th until this time next week, another fantastic interview. I am Captain Jim Palmer, the Dream Business Coach. You take good care. Now it's time to go implement what you've learned. Great ideas are nice, but results only happen through action and implementation. So stay focused. Kick all distractions to the curb. Sleep a little less if you have to. And create your dream business now so you too can live your dream lifestyle. To learn about building your dream business, join Jim's free Dream Business Facebook community at dreambizgroup.com. That's dreambizgroup.com. See you next week for more Dream Business Radio.